Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Over the past year especially, our nation's issues with socioeconomic and racial inequality have been laid bare in all of their stark dysfunction. And there's been a lot of discussion around the role that the ultra-wealthy play in the perpetuation of these systems. Our next guest says that while not all the country's ultra-rich are necessarily conscious of their complicity in upholding systems of inequality and oppression, it is happening nonetheless. Jim Freeman is one of the country's leading civil rights lawyers. He directs the Social Movement Support Lab at the University of Denver, and he's the author of the forthcoming book, Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice. Jim, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. It's great to be with you. Yes, it's great to have you here. So I, I want to start right there with the title. It is quite provocative. And I think there are a lot of people who would reflexively say, well, hold on a second. What do you mean the ultra-wealthy profit from racial injustice? So I will put that question right to you. Uh, explain what you mean by that. Well, you know, what what I mean, frankly, Stephen, is that um, is, is really exactly that, is that I want people to understand that the biggest reason why systemic racism persists is that, you know, these dynamics that we see in the criminal justice system, the education system, the immigration system, and so many others, which are so devastating for so many people of color and communities of color, are for a lot of large corporations and Wall Street banks enormously profitable. And they are the biggest reason why we have these deeply unjust policies on the books. And they're also heavily invested in preserving and expanding racial inequities. So um, for me, the, the term systemic racism isn't even descriptive enough. And that's why I refer to it as strategic racism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and that's the term that you, uh, that you use in the book, I, I, I want to drill down on that point, though, a, a little, a little more. Give us some examples of systems that keep, in particular, black and brown people uh, from enjoying opportunity and and wealth in this country um, that benefit uh, rich people. Sure. Yeah. And in, in the book, I focus on three issues in particular, though there are plenty of other examples. Um, I focus on criminal justice, education, and immigration. And I did that because, you know, right now in the U.S., there may not be a more significant racial justice issue than the massive overinvestment in the criminalization of people of color alongside the dramatic underinvestment in the systems and strategies that would create healthier, safer, and more equitable communities nationwide. So, for example, on the criminal justice side, we have made um, the police and the criminal justice system more broadly, sort of the catch-all solution for an enormous variety of public health and safety issues, mm. right? And then and that's particularly true within black and brown communities. Then we took the same destructive and ineffective approach, the so-called tough-on-crime approach, and we applied it to our immigration enforcement system, right? And then at the same time, in the education system, we have never in the history of our country 
been willing to create a truly equitable education system to put youth of color on equal footing with, with, with white youth. So the harm that each of these dynamics has caused is incalculable. Mm -hmm. Yet what they also share in common is that the ultra wealthy are heavily invested in maintaining and even exacerbating these inequities. inequities. So if, if you follow the money behind these, these policies, the policies behind tough on crime and our extreme anti-immigrant policies and the privatization of our, of our school system, what you find is that the people driving that agenda are billionaires like Charles Koch and others that that he and his brother organized. And you find large corporations and Wall Street banks that push these policies, um, often behind the scenes, often secretively. And these, these groups, these, these organizations have made huge investments in think tanks and advocacy organizations and media outlets that have been very, very successful in advancing this agenda. Uh, I, I want to talk for a second also about intentionality. And it's something that we talk about quite a bit on this show when we talk about inequality. The idea of things that people do purposely to perpetuate systemic inequality and things that people do that they're maybe not aware uh, perpetuate uh, systemic inequality. And I want you to try to put some of these issues into into those into those categories is this uh, you know is this a, an accusation against the ultra wealthy uh, as a class that uh, that that says they are purposefully uh, keeping black and brown people from from opportunity or wealth or is it uh, is it the opposite that the, this is just the way uh, systems work uh, and it does benefit those those folks at, at the top, but that uh, that the the racist dimension of it is maybe not uh, is maybe not the motivation. We also, of course, talk a lot on the show about the the lack of distinction if you're on the the the, the bad end of uh, of systemic inequality. It doesn't really matter why it's happening. But I do think it's really important in terms of the discussion about how to solve. These issues, the the awareness that people who benefit from these things have, is really important. Uh, can you can you talk just a little about that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one thing I want to be be clear on is that I'm what I'm not saying in the book is that every billionaire and multimillionaire um, is, you know, a um, a closeted racist who is advancing these policies with intention. Um, I do think that the, the, the number of individuals and organizations that are complicit in these dynamics is far greater than what most people um, w- would think. Um, but I do say in the book also that, you know, that the devastation that's being inflicted by these policies um, it is purposeful. It is intentional. And, you know, I, for one, for a long time, I didn't want to believe that, you know, I would hear people say that, but I never really understood it, or maybe I just didn't want to believe it. But eventually, you know, I came to realize that the evidence was irrefutable, Mm. right? So when I say it's intentional, I I really do mean that they know what they're doing. (laughs) In most and maybe all cases of the policies that I talk about in the book, they knew beforehand what the impact would be from those policies that they were advocating for. And then after the fact, after they were implemented, um, you know, they know that the criminal justice policies they've advocated for have resulted in 
you know, far more people in jail and prison and particularly people of color. They know that the immigration policies they've advocated for have led to the exploitation and really dehumanization of immigrants. And they know that the education policies they've advocated for have led to major harm to students, families, and communities of color across the U.S. They know this because the communities who are most affected by those policies, by their actions, have been saying so loud and clear mm -hmm. for decades. And yet, they keep going. They keep advocating for the same policies. So that's that's really what I mean by being intentional. They they know that what they're doing will harm people, and especially people of color, and they do it anyway, which is, I imagine, why they try and hide it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also want to talk about the relationship between the ultra-wealthy, the people who you're talking about in the book, and other white Americans, particularly working class white Americans, who often are, can be found supporting, uh, you know, the same policies that the ultra wealthy support. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of discussion about why that's true, what they think they're accomplishing by, by, by doing that, um, and uh, whether they have, you know, been uh, essentially misled into in thinking that uh, they would also benefit uh, from from these kinds of from these kinds of policies. But but if you could talk just a little about um, about that dynamic and uh, how none of this would be possible, frankly, uh, if the ultra wealthy did not have uh, lots of allies uh, who 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 line up quite willingly. Uh, behind these policies uh, for reasons that that may or may not look the same. Yeah, you're exactly you're exactly right, Stephen. I mean, the while I I certainly spent you know spill a lot of ink making the case that um, the ultra wealthy are the ones who are most responsible for these dynamics. I also say that you know without the sort of overwhelmingly um, white people who, as you say, line up behind them, who have basically been conscripted as foot soldiers mm -hmm. for this strategic racism, then then it wouldn't exist, right? They wouldn't have the, they wouldn't be able to get the votes that they need. They wouldn't be able to dominate the public narrative the way they do on these issues. Um, and so, you know, one reason why I wrote the book was um, because for, for people who are in the racial justice movement who, you know, I spent a lot of time sort of immersed in the tax filings of very, very wealthy people, mm -hmm. um, learning about where they were putting their money and the strategy behind it, and and learning about the impact um, of those policies. And I wanted to share that with folks who were in the movement. But the, but the other reason was, um, which is, as you point out, is for folks who are not currently active in the racial justice movement, but who need to know how interconnected their struggles are mm -hmm. with the struggles faced by by communities of color with with systemic racism and so you know the that was never really more apparent to me than when i was doing this research because you know the the portfolio of the ultra wealthy is far more diversified than just this strategic racism that i talk about you know as i learn more about where they direct their money and the ideology that guides those decisions I realize how heavily invested they are in pushing a political agenda that has been deeply harmful to most white Americans as well. Mm -hmm. And so if, if white people, working class, middle class, um, low-income white people, if they examine the reasons their lives are, are far more difficult than they need to be 
than they need to be, they will likely eventually run into the same set of organizations and individuals who are leading the opposition against racial equality. So, you know, I, for one, was frankly astonished to, to discover just how enormous an influence the ultra wealthy have had on my life and that of every white person I know, to where if you actually break it down, this very small group of people has far more control over the public policy decisions that affect our lives mm -hmm. than the rest of us have combined. Um, and so it really is, um, it really has to be a multiracial effort um, to, to address this um, because right now it, it's, it's affecting all of us, though obviously not in the same ways. Yeah. I'm talking with Jim Freeman. He is one of the country's leading civil rights lawyers, director of the Social Movement Support Lab at the University of Denver, and the author of a forthcoming book with a really provocative title. It is called Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice. We're talking uh, about the research that Jim has done into the really direct connections between uh, ultra-wealth in this country and the policies that prevent uh, black and brown people from enjoying the kind of opportunity and wealth uh, that America promises. Um, we would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. How do you view the super wealthy these days? We live in a capitalist system, by some accounts, a late stage capitalist system. Do you view these uber wealthy uh, individuals as a negative symptom of our economic system? Uh, what do you think about the role that they play uh, in supporting or in some cases even designing policies uh, that perpetuate systemic inequality. Um, people like uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook have definitely been vilified and sometimes rightfully so by critics. But do you actually have a problem with them existing or with the systems uh, that they have allowed for them to get so rich in the first place? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Jim, I want to put that question to you. Is this about wealth itself in, in many ways? In other words, uh, do, we, do we have a system that uh, that creates this class of ultra-wealthy people who would almost reflexively, I think, uh, create policies that uh, would, would keep uh, you know, uh, certain classes of people from uh, enjoying the same benefits that, uh, that they have? Or is this more a function of the country's racist history? In other words, that uh, you know, from the jump, uh, America's uh, foundations and institutions are very firmly rooted in systemic inequality and and racism, uh, and so uh, the, the the behavior of the ultra wealthy is just a reflection uh, of of those roots. Uh, I, I wonder if there's a distinction uh, you would make there. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, the for me where I think we have to be putting our attention is the fact that we know for a fact that entire communities of people are gonna be severely harmed by our criminal justice system, our immigration enforcement system, our education system and other systems. 
every day, every month, every year. That that racially inequitable account out, racially inequitable outcomes will inevitably occur based on how these systems have been set up. Mm-hmm. And yet we demonstrate no collective urgency to fix them currently. You know, that for me, in a nutshell, is the most pervasive form of modern day racism. We've simply become far too willing to implement public policies that inflict needless harm on large groups of people, particularly people of color, and far too unwilling to address that harm appropriately when it becomes apparent. And it is undoubtedly the case that the ultra wealthy um, have been a key part in creating that public policy apparatus, that infrastructure that allows that to happen. And we have not collectively as a country done a good job at all of holding them accountable for that, Mm -hmm. of not only demanding that they stop doing that, but that they join us in the effort to fix it. And, and I think we have to get to that point where we can make that collective demand. Um, and that if they and if at that point they don't do that, then I think we have to really look at okay, how are we? If you're going to be this politically powerful and you're not going to join the rest of us in the effort to dismantle these systems, then then we have to look into alternatives that reduce your power, so the rest of us can get to work in creating the country that that we all want to see, the country that's going to support us all in living good, happy, healthy, fulfilling lives. Mm. Um, and so I think that's where we have to go. Um, and so I, you know, I think there are plenty of opportunities um, for the ultra wealthy to, to put their wealth to, to great use. Um, uh, unfortunately, up until now, we have allowed them to, uh, to use their wealth in ways, um, not, not to say that all of their wealth is going in negative directions, there are often very high-profile efforts that they that they lead um, to uh, to put their wealth to good use. It's these other uses that I think we really have to interrogate um, and hold them accountable for. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back. We're going to continue this conversation with Jim Freeman. We're going to get to your calls. Graham in Ann Arbor, Aaron in Macomb Township, Frank in Detroit, Robert in East Point. We will hear from you. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. My guest is Jim Freeman, one of the country's leading civil rights attorneys and author of the forthcoming book, Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Justice. We're talking about the research that Jim has done into the connection between the ultra-wealthy and the policies that are in place that keep systemic inequality going here in America. Uh, As always, we want to hear from you on the phones, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the Facebook page that we have here at WDET or go to Twitter and hashtag us, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation uh, that way. Let's go to uh, Graham in Ann Arbor. Graham, welcome to the show. 
Hi, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was just wondering if I could ask your guest uh, about uh, the difference between um, implicit bias, the emphasis on implicit bias versus the emphasis on uh, structural or systemic racism. I think, uh, you know, systemic racism is a, a term that gets thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, I think that a lot of people sort of uh, conflate uh, implicit bias with structural racism. So if we do, you know, tons of implicit bias trainings at big corporations, does that kind of let the more powerful people and the, the structures um, and the policies sort of off the hook and focus on individuals? And, and can implicit bias training actually be ultimately that helpful in dismantling um, these, you know, hmm. uh, these historic problems? Right. Uh, great question, Graham. I'm glad you called. Uh, Jim, uh, speak to what Aaron's asking here. Yeah, I agree. That is a that is a great question, and you know, it's it's also very timely uh, because, um, you know, I I think implicit bias trainings can be very helpful um, to have folks self reflect um, on these issues and and dive deeper into these issues. It can be an entry point for lots of folks to become involved in these issues. I've seen that happen um, many many times. Um, but um, I think we all have to recognize um, that, that there's an enormous opportunity in front of us um, to really end systemic racism once and for all. I think that the movement being built right now can achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. But it's going to take a lot more than just doing implicit bias trainings, than holding up you know, Black Lives Matter signs every time there's a tragedy or, or you know, other types of policy initiatives like having police officers wear body cameras and corporations implementing relatively superficial diversity initiatives, right? Those, those things represent progress, at least in some form, but not, but not nearly enough. You know, I mean, those are the types of things that, that white Americans in particular, we we love to congratulate ourselves for, you know, we're constantly patting ourselves on the back for quote unquote, making progress on racial equity. And we've been doing that for, you know, well over a hundred years now. And, and I think the question is, how many more people are we going to allow to be harmed? How many more lives are we going to allow to be taken while we are content to not actually solve the problem, but merely make progress? You know, I think when it comes to racial justice, we need to remove the word progress from our vocabulary mm-hmm. entirely. I think it's time to advance real solutions. Um, but to do so, it's going to require many more people understanding how and why corporate America and Wall Street are able to profit from other people's pain. And we're going to need many more white people in particular to understand how their struggles are deeply interconnected with the struggles of people of color so that they recognize that the fight for racial justice is also their fight. Mm, wow. Uh, Graham, again, thanks very much for the call and the, the, the really great question. Uh, let's go to Frank in Detroit. Frank, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen Henderson. Hey. Uh, thank you for having your guest. Sure. Uh, in terms of the ultra-rich and the racist impact on American society, I, I can look no further than Joel Bezos, Jeff Bezos, sorry, and Amazon. Um, here we have Detroit. I'm a, I'm a retired auto worker. I, I used to have what's called uh, what was called a middle-class job. I would have made maybe $29, $30 an hour working on an assembly line. Mm. And today we have the city administration touting Amazon coming to Detroit and creating middle-class jobs for Detroiters at $15 an hour. Mm. This mm. is, you know, 10, 15 years after I've retired. 
So there is a there's a definite structural racism to the uh, devastation of Detroit and other uh, black majority cities in Michigan with the auto industry, uh, you know, deindustrializing basically in those towns. And then we have ultra billionaires coming in and saying, oh, well, we have something to offer you and something that uh, is certainly if you wanted to call it middle class, it would be a middle class light. And this <laughs> is the kind of structure that perpetuates uh, uh, black poverty. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what's happening to our city. So I'll, I'll leave it at there. I'd love to hear uh, Mr. Freeman's comments and, sure. and, and response. Frank, really, really great observation. Thanks so much uh, for the call. You know, Jim, this lowering of economic expectation, and it's been across the board, of course. It's not just for black and brown people. But I think Frank really, uh, really puts his finger on the disproportionate impact that it has. I mean, wages have not grown substantially uh, for the last 30 years, really, in this country. But in this case, you know, Amazon comes to Detroit uh, and offers jobs at $15 an hour in a city where we used to routinely pay people a lot more. And, you know, we cheer it because the, the, the fact is, you know, without that, we wouldn't even have the jobs, let alone uh, a better wage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, you can look at the, the types of dynamics um, that, that Frank is describing um, with, with companies like Amazon. You can look at the types of dynamics related to the, the spread of, let's say, Walmart um, and what that's done to wages um, in communities, particularly communities of color across the U.S. And you can do a very, uh, very similar analysis around strategic racism in employment and you know economic justice issues that I did in the book for um, for criminal justice issues for immigration issues and for education issues and um, and you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't stop there I mean I think we can do I mean one of the reasons why I wanted to do the book is that you know maybe people like Frank would would do that analysis and would write that book on how the same types of dynamics are happening in other areas and are happening in environmental justice issues or happening around women's rights issues, um, a variety of other things. I think the, the same types of policies, the same types of dynamics, the same types of effects um, have, have taken place across um, these many systems. And it's really when you aggregate the impact of all those things that you uh, that you can really start to understand and, and explain the devastation, really, that many communities have experienced. Mm -hmm. uh, again, uh, Frank, really love the, the, the call and the provocative thoughts there. Let's go to Deborah in Detroit. Deborah, welcome to the show. Hi there. Uh, briefly, the same super wealthy monarchy that financed uh, colonization the same super wealthy that came over and established uh, plantation slavery and dumped free farm labor into the labor market are the same people that inculcated uh, divide and conquer race hatred. Look at what those black people are doing. They're animals. They're this and that. And so they're the ones that started the Ku Klux Klan. They're the ones that pitted sharecroppers against each other mm. and it is one of the primary reasons that every working person in this country has been affected 
by slavery. Every wage rate, unless you have a union protecting you, every wage rate, particularly farm work, service work, how are you going to dump 200-plus years of free labor in the system and everybody's not affected? Deborah, that's a great observation. I don't want to – don't mean to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time, and I really want Jim – to address uh, the subject, how how far back uh, this this dynamic goes, even though you know Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg weren't slave owners, the, the connection between their behavior and that era, I think, is really important. Yeah, I agree, um, and I uh, I agree with the point that that Deborah was making that you know in, in some form or fashion this has been going on for the entire history of our country. The problem though, is I think most people think, most people think of these problems, think of these dynamics as part of our history, Mm -hmm. not our present, right? So they may acknowledge the injustice of slavery or the seizure of tribal land or, you know, Jim Crow era segregation. But what they don't see is how modern day policing and anti-immigrant policies and and school privatization initiatives, initiatives are actively perpetuating and deepening systemic racism. And, you know, it's, it's also true, you know, I, I think it's important to take a historical lens, but also to take an international lens, because hmm. the same dynamics exist in other countries, but there's nobody who's weaponized strategic racism as effectively as the ultra-wealthy in the U.S. Okay, uh, Jim Freeman. It was really, really great to have you here for this conversation. Of course, I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining Thank you for having me, Stephen. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about one of my favorite events here in Detroit each year, Detroit's Jazz Fest and what it will look like in 2021. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.